0: Since the 2000 election, we've seen a lot of changes. Congress passed the Help America Vote Act, which uh, changed uh, some of the procedures for elections and also uh, established money to get rid of machines. But in addition to that, uh, we've seen uh, changes in state laws, and we've seen changes in uh, election technology, and we've seen changes in litigation. And I would say most of it has not been for the better in terms of our election system, aside from getting rid of the bad technology.
1: This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Produced right here on the Legal Talk Network.
2: Hello, and welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams, coming to you from a blistering, hot and humid, sunny Southern California. My co-host, Bob Ambrosia is away on business today. I read a legal blog called May It Please the Court. and have a book out called How to Get Sued. And we'd like to take this time to thank our sponsors, Clio, a web-based practice management software program for lawyers at goclio.com, AppRiver, email and web security experts. You can find out more about AppRiver at appriver.com. And PC Law by LexisNexis. For a free trial, you can go to pclaw.com slash radio. Before 2006, not a single state in the U.S. of A. required voters to show an ID before marking a ballot. But now, 30 states have enacted some sort of voter identification law. The strictest states require voters to show photo IDs, while in the most lenient states, a bill with your name and address would do. Supporters say that these laws are necessary to prevent the serious problem of voter fraud, Opponents, on the other hand, say these laws are passed to discourage low-income groups, the elderly, and minorities from voting. So today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're heading to the ballot box and tackling the very controversial topic of voter ID laws. To help us discuss that, we have two guests. Joining us now is Professor Richard L. Hassan. He is the Chancellor's Professor of Law and Political Science at the University of California Irvine in my hometown here. Professor Hassan is a nationally recognized expert in election law and campaign finance regulation. He's the co-author of a leading casebook on election law. You can also find out more about Professor Hassan on his blog, Election Law electionlawblog at electionlawblog.org. Welcome to the show, Professor Rick Hassan. It's my pleasure. And also joining us is Wendy Weiser. Wendy is the director of the Democracy Program at the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU School of Law, a nonpartisan think tank and public interest law center. Wendy founded and directed the center's Voting Rights and Elections Project, coordinating litigation, research, advocacy efforts to enhance political participation and prevent voter disenfranchisement across the country. Her work and the work she directed protected the voting rights of hundreds of thousands of Citizens in 2006, 2008, and again in 2010. Welcome, Wendy Weiser.
3: Thank you for having me.
2: Well, Rick, let's start with you. Back when uh, I was in law school, uh, way before 2006, there were virtually no voter ID laws, uh, some that were on the books but had gone their way out. But now more than half the states have some sort of law. Why is there such a dramatic change?
0: Well, we've seen dramatic shifts in how our elections are conducted since uh, the 2000 election. You may remember in 2000, we had our presidential election go into overtime, and eventually the Supreme Court had to step in in the Bush versus Gore case, as it wasn't clear whether uh, George W. Bush or Al Gore had won Florida. Since the 2000 election, we've seen a lot of changes. Congress passed the Help America Vote Act, which uh, changed uh, some of the procedures for elections and also uh, established money to get rid of machines. But in addition to that, uh, we've seen uh, changes in state laws, and we've seen changes in uh, election technology, and we've seen changes in litigation. And I would say most of it has not been for the better in terms of our election system, aside from getting rid of the bad technology. And one of the things we've seen, besides a doubling in the doubling of the amount of litigation, uh, since 2000, is that uh, states have begun passing election laws on uh, mostly on partisan uh, divides. So in every state except for Rhode Island that's passed a voter ID law, it's been passed almost exclusively with Republican votes and opposed almost exclusively with Democratic votes. And so this has become caught up in what I call the voting wars between the parties uh, where uh, the these laws are being passed not just uh, or not with an eye on uh, what's best election practice, but with what might help one political party or another uh, do better in close elections.
2: And, Wendy, what, what are the, uh, how does supporters, I mean, I realize you may not be a supporter, but how do supporters defend these laws?
3: Well, um, I, I do want to differentiate between two kinds of voter ID laws. Um, you know, every state in the country requires some form of ID from at least um, some categories of their voters, um, and everybody requires voters to um, demonstrate that they are who they say they are. Um, what we've seen in recent years, and um, especially this past year, are um, highly restrictive voter ID laws that limit the forms of IDs that citizens can produce to a very narrow list of government-issued photo IDs and that uh, offer no alternative way for those voters to identify themselves and, and vote on Election Day. And so and that's really the movement that's been um, highly um, controversial. Um, um, That is one that has been defended um, uh, by supporters in a variety of ways, but mostly as a way of um, preventing and um, stopping uh, in-person voter fraud, people going up, um, showing up at the polls and voting um, in the name of someone else or in the name of an ineligible voter um so that that is what it's defended um on basis um, we at the Brennan Center and um and we're not the only ones who've done this work have done a a fair amount of work um documenting uh, uh or the absence of in person voter fraud and in fact um there has been um very um precious few um cases that anybody has ever been able to demonstrate of an individual Um, attempting to impersonate another voter at the polls, (laughs) and um, that that's been demonstrated to have happened, and we, uh, overall, um, the likelihood of uh, an individual doing that is less than the likelihood of an American getting struck by lightning, um, based um, based on what's been uncovered so far.
2: So, Rick, let's set the groundwork here. What is required to be a voter in the United States? Do you have to be a citizen? Do you have to live in the state? Uh, do you have to be an adult? What, what are the requirements to be able to vote in the United States?
0: Well, it's, a, it's an interesting question because uh, there are no set requirements for, uh, each, uh, for the country, even for a federal election. These are set by state law. Uh, now, in terms of um, discrimination against certain types of voters, that's prohibited by the Constitution. So, in fact, we've amended our Constitution uh, to allow uh, 18-year-olds uh, to vote. Uh, well, let me interrupt right.
2: you for a moment here. It seems kind of dumb to not have a federal definition, but yet have a federal law that prohibits discrimination against voters. How do you know who you're discriminating against and who you're not if you don't have a standard?
0: Well, you know, the the state gets to set the, the rules for who gets to vote subject to the U.S. Constitution. So, for example, you cannot have a white-only primary. Uh, you cannot discriminate against uh, women. Uh, you cannot... Um, uh, discriminate against someone who's uh, an adult. Uh, but beyond that, in terms of defining uh, residency, in terms of, for example, a very hot uh, issue that's contested is whether or not uh, felons who completed their sentences are allowed to vote. This is uh, set by state law. And it's actually even um, more decentralized than that. Uh, many of the determinations of Uh, what counts uh, and and, and, uh, uh, who is going to be able to cast a ballot are being made not on the state level, but on the county or lower level. Uh, It's actually a um, mistake to believe we have a single federal election in November. We actually have something like 13,000 elections in in different election jurisdictions using different machines, different rules, and in some cases, different eligibility requirements. In the um, Pennsylvania Voter Identification Trial, which uh, just concluded and we're waiting for a ruling, uh, it turns out that the the law gives lots of uh, flexibility to local officials to decide what forms of ID might be okay, who counts as an indigent. And there's actually at least one Democratic election official who said that if if the law is upheld by the courts, he's not going to enforce it. So we have lots of decentralization and disagreements about who should be allowed to vote. And that, of course, runs the risk of partisan manipulation of the process to either include more voters or exclude them.
2: So there's, there's really no restriction on whether or not you have to be a citizen to be able to vote?
0: Well, uh, it is permissible to limit a voting to citizens, but it is not required. Right? So uh, there are some states that have, um, in local elections, or, or I shouldn't say states, but localities. Over In history, there have been non-citizens, but there have been localities, for example, Tacoma Park, Maryland, has allowed non-citizens to vote in local elections. So this is uh, this is left to um, uh, state, in some cases, local law.
2: Well, Wendy, with thirteen thousand or so different sets of standards, how in God's name could we ever come up with what's discriminatory and what's not?
3: Well, there are some baseline federal standards that do apply uh, across the country, and there are some baseline um, statewide standards that apply in in each state. And so the, there are some baseline rules that we can look at um looking at um the pennsylvania um photo i d law for example um the law is being um challenged under the state constitution but um while um it's um there are ways in which um the implementation might differ state by state across the state. They have only a limited number of state-issued photo IDs that are now acceptable for voting, assuming the court doesn't block that law. And so that is statewide, and we can measure whether or not that will have a discriminatory effect, who it is that has those IDs and who it is that doesn't have those IDs, um, and how hard it is for those individuals to obtain those IDs. Um, We know from uh, reports by that state's own Department of Transportation that approximately 758,000 um, registered Pennsylvania voters don't have um, the um, state-issued photo IDs. We know also um, from uh, we also know from a, a report that the um, Brennan Center recently put out that. Um, a um significant portion of those voters um live um uh, don't have access to a vehicle and live more than um ten miles um away from the nearest ID issuing office um that is open more than two days a week and so therefore we'll have a real difficulty obtaining those IDs. And so while that um it might be more difficult in states that um make it even uh, in counties that are um uh, making it um uh, harder for people to demonstrate that they are indigent and are entitled to um assistance in obtaining those IDs. Um I think that we we have enough information to see that this law is going to um significantly harm um some groups more than others. And in this case, um uh as it turns out, um, African Americans are gonna be especially are especially especially less likely to have the IDs. Um they make up uh, they they make up a, a large percentage of the um, of the a much larger percentage of the voters that did not have the IDs and in Philadelphia they made up a full um, a full third of I, I believe the voters without the IDs.
2: Is this the only level of, of voter challenge that's going on right now? Uh, voter ID laws, or are there other voter issues that uh, that, that command your attention, Rick?
0: Uh, well, no, there are a number of issues. In fact, uh, voter ID is the most prominent, but uh, another uh, big controversy right now is over uh, voter purges. That is when states uh, take their electoral rolls and uh, are clearing out the names of um, voters who are no longer eligible to vote, deceased voters, voters who've moved, voters who are now felons, uh, you know, lost eligibility. Uh, the idea of um, purging or cleaning voter rolls makes a lot of sense uh, if it's done in a uh, a fair and systematic way. Uh, Right now, there are uh, attempts by, again, almost all Republican uh, secretaries of state to try and use a federal database to clear out non-citizens from the voting rolls. It turns out that every once in a while you have a non-citizen who's registered to vote, occasionally even voted, Uh, That is um, uh, something that happens on a rare occasion, and the question is what to do about it. These uh, Republican governors want to use a federal database uh, of um, citizenship, which is used for other purposes like employment purposes to try and purge voters. Uh, Democrats and voting rights advocates are worried that the purges are going to exclude eligible voters and that there won't be enough time before the election for an eligible voter who's been mistakenly purged to get um, his or her uh, voting rights back. And in fact, there's a federal law, the National uh, Voter Registration Act, or the Motor Voter Law, which prevents certain kinds of voter purges within 90 days of an election. Uh, In addition to the voter purge uh, issue, there are fights over early voting periods. Florida and Ohio have both cut back on their early voting periods. uh, And uh, Democrats say that this is being done because Democrats have been the ones to take advantage of these uh, early voting periods. Uh, Republicans uh, are defending these laws as uh, necessary for purposes of election administration to make sure that poll workers are ready on election day. And bo- In both uh, Florida and Ohio, uh, Democrats and voting rights groups have challenged the uh, shutting down of the early voting period, particularly on the Sunday before election day, which was a day that was used by many uh, African-American churches to organize uh, trips uh, to go and do early voting after uh, Sunday services. So we, we have a, just a, a wide variety of problems. Those are uh, some of the areas where, aside from voter ID, uh, the parties are fighting over the election rules.
2: Wendy, I understand you know the objection to uh, low-income people that cannot afford to get to a place where photo IDs are issued in order to be able to vote, but I have an absentee ballot. And it shows up at my front door. I've never had to show an ID to the postman to get it. Why isn't that a solution to this problem?
3: You know, in some states, um, people who um, don't have ID can still vote um, by absentee ballot without having to show photo ID. Some of the states, like Kansas, for example, has um, applied the photo ID requirement to people who get absentee ballots as well. And so you would have to then Take um, a photocopy of your ID and submit it with your absentee ballot in order to be able to vote. Um, not every state makes it um, ha- has no excuse absentee balloting, meaning that no, not every in every state, not everybody is eligible to cast an absentee ballot. You need to meet a state um, pre-approved reason, and so many people who don't have um, the state issued photo IDs won't meet their state requirements and won't have that as an alternative way of voting. That said, people like to vote at their polling places. They like to join with their fellow community members and participate in the important civic ritual of voting, and that would be foreclosed to them.
2: Well, I don't mean to argue with you, but I thought voting was a solitary effort. You go in, you cast your own ballot, and you leave. I mean, I have voted in polls before, and you know, maybe you run into one or two people, but what's the fascination with, with uh going in by yourself and then coming out by yourself? I don't understand that argument.
3: Well, um people do like to um uh, participate ha- have equal access to all of the methods of voting um not everybody is comfortable especially people who uh, might um need assistance voting um with um filling out a ballot um with a pen and paper at home um people some people um don't have as equal access to the mail or have mail problems and would like to be able to vote um, using a polling place. That said, the absentee balloting, as I mentioned before, is not an option that's available to everybody in all the and states. And what, what
2: kind of numbers are we talking about? What type? What level of disenfranchisement are you citing here?
3: You know, it, it's hard to tell how many people are going to be disenfranchised. What we have a lot of information about is um, how many people don't have these kinds of state issue photo IDs so we know that um nationally roughly um 11% of eligible um voting eligible Americans um or, um don't have um state issued photo IDs that would be accepted under the laws that um um uh, several states have have just um passed this year um for voting um, we know that um, a disproportionate number of minorities and low-income voters and seniors um, would not be um, also don't have those IDs. For African Americans, the number is as high as 25%. Um, for seniors, it's 18%. So we we can measure that. Um, there, the best available evidence suggests that um, these laws do depress turnout. But they haven't been in effect long enough to be able to really measure what their um, actual effect on the election is going to be overall. But what we do know is that there are very large numbers of eligible American citizens who um, now cannot, who would now not be able to vote unless they are able to overcome this hurdle. And for many of them, they won't be able to.
2: Of the percentages that you cited, since for example, the 11% figure that you cited, what percentage of those people wouldn't vote anyway? I mean, there are a great number of us who are uh, registered to vote, and we get voter percentage turnouts in the 20% range that determine our elections. So given that that turnout level is so small among voters who are registered, what would the turnout be of the 11% or so that the don't have the uh, photo IDs that you're talking about? Is that the same percentage where you get about a fifth of the people that would actually vote? So you're really talking about 2 or 3%? Well,
3: if we're looking in, um, the, I mean, nationally, our turnout rate is not a a fifth. Um, There are some local elections or primary elections where that's the turnout rate. Um, In um, presidential elections, it gets as high as about 60%. um, Among registered voters, it's much higher than that. Um, uh, When we look at um, the numbers from Pennsylvania that I mentioned, um, the the state's own figure suggested that it was 9% of registered voters, not just eligible voters, that didn't have the state-issued photo ID. So we're not only looking at people who haven't participated before. Um, But every year, um, in every federal election, a significant number of people who participate in that election are people who have never voted before. It's roughly about, um, it's it's more than 10% of the people who participate in each federal election have not participated before. They're they're new voters. Um, People get motivated at different times. And just because they're not longtime voters does not mean that they should not um, be able to vote and should not have access to the franchise when they are so motivated. You know, we do have the right to vote. We also have the right to sit out an election if we so choose.
2: Great. Uh, it's time for us to take a short break. We'll have much more on voting rights when Lawyer to Lawyer returns right after this.
4: Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack is going to talk to us about the benefits of cloud computing. Now, what do you think the single biggest benefit to cloud computing
5: is? In talking to our customers recently uh, about that very question, I was surprised with what came back with as, as a really resounding response, and that was that it's the convenience and the freedom that cloud computing affords them. The ability to get their work done from anywhere, whether it's at their office, at the courthouse, at home, or even if they're on vacation, they're able to get their work done where and when they need to get it done. Uh, the mobile aspect of things is also increasingly important with with cloud-based software you can access your data and software from your iphone or your ipad uh, your blackberry uh, and other mobile devices so for the uh, lawyers that are on the move which is an increasing uh, proportion of lawyers that's a, a really key benefit as well
4: we've been talking to jack newton president of clio Thank you so much, Jack.
5: Thank you. And if anyone wants additional information on Clio, they can feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O dot It's the office calling again. Don't answer it. Why not?
4: I'm listening to Legal Talk Network podcasts to get my CLE credit in West Legal Ed Center. Oh, yeah. I need to do that, too. Where do I find them? It's easy. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and pick a program for CLE, click on it, and start listening. Or go to WestLegalEdCenter.com and choose from any of the Legal Talk Network programs available for CLE.
5: That's perfect. The office can wait.
1: Tired of all the headaches of running your law firm? Want to spend your time doing what really matters? Then you need PC Law. PC Law from LexisNexis is the legal industry's best-selling matter billing and accounting software. It has never been easier to manage your law firm and serve your clients. Get back to doing what matters to you. For a free trial, go to pclaw.com/radio. That's pclaw.com/radio or call us at 800-685-2161 today.
4: Promote yourself online with Legal Talk Network by becoming a featured lawyer. Your featured lawyer profile lets potential clients and referral attorneys get to know you in a five minute podcast interview with Legal Talk Network, plus your photo, your bio, and your firm's contact info. Be part of the most progressive online legal network anywhere. Just call Legal Talk Network at 781 551 9960. That's 781 551 9960, or by emailing admin at legaltalknetwork.com. Be a legal talk network featured lawyer now. Protect your firm's email with AppRiver. Send confidential emails with confidence using AppRiver's CipherPost Pro email encryption service. With CipherPost Pro, you'll control who sees your messages, and a patented delivery slip will show you when they're received and opened. There's no hardware or software to manage. You can cancel anytime, and you get a 30-day free trial. All backed by AppRiver's phenomenal care. Visit appriver.com, that's appriver.com, or call 866-223-4645.
1: We're glad you're listening to Legal Talk Network. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, too. You can advertise with us at Legal Talk Network and have your own commercial playing in this podcast. Just give us a call anytime at 781-551-9960 or shoot us an email at admin at LegalTalkNetwork.com.
2: Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We're talking voting rights with Professor Rick Hasen from the University of California, Irvine, and Wendy Weiser, the Director of the Democracy Program at the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU School of Law. Let's get back to our conversation now. Rick, uh, you know, attorney... General Eric Holder has compared these voter ID laws to a poll tax. Is he right with that comparison?
0: I think that that is, um, it, it is uh, language that is quite provocative. And uh, uh, I, there's a debate as to whether or not these laws are equivalent to a poll tax. With a poll tax, of course, you actually have to pay money uh, in order to be uh, able to vote. And uh, these were used in a racially discriminatory fashion in the South. It's, it's much along the lines of the Claims that are sometimes being made on the left, that these new voter ID laws are are the the new Jim Crow. You may have heard that expression. Uh, I think that so long as the um, voter uh, ID requirement is put in place in a uh, way that allows indigent voters to be able to cast a ballot without the ID, uh, and that's done in a reasonable way, then I think that the comparison to a poll tax is, is overstated. Uh, that said, if you're a poor person and you um, don't have, say, the $20 that you would need to be able to get a birth certificate, which would be required to get the ID, if you're in a state like Indiana and you want to cast a ballot, you're only allowed to cast a provisional ballot, and that ballot will only count if you go to the county seat, which is not where you uh, voted, but in, in the county at your own expense, uh, and file a declaration of indigency, and you'd have to do this after each election. Something like that looks to me much closer to a poll tax. You need to make it so that someone who is too poor to be able to afford the documentation for photo ID uh, to be able to vote. And states differ uh, on how they handle uh, the question of indigency and voter and, and photo ID.
2: You know, uh, what I'm hearing is, uh, you know, on the one hand, Legitimate in the standpoint that there are people that have difficulty obtaining these these uh, IDs, but on the other hand, I think well, just about every government service that you show up and ask for, you're required to show an ID. I show up at the DMV, I show up with an ID. I show up at the Social Security office, I show up with an ID. I show up to get a passport, I show up with an ID. Practically every government uh, involvement that I have in you know requires me first to show a driver's license or some form of photo ID. Why is it unreasonable to extend that to voting when it's just like another government service? It's just a right like every other right I've got.
0: I think there are a few answers. One is that not every ID is going to count as acceptable under a state law. So, for example, under the Texas law, which is currently on hold, as being considered by a court in Washington, uh, D.C., if you have a student... um, ID. You're a college student. Uh, your ID does not uh, count. You can't use that. But if you have a concealed carry permit for your gun, it does count. That looks like a choice that uh, was made by the Republican legislature to try and make it easier for certain groups of voters to vote and uh, harder for others, including voters who are likely to vote uh, Democratic. Uh, the other thing is, uh, if you talk about people who don't have ID. Uh, th- these are often going to be very poor people, people who live in urban areas who don't have a driver's license, uh, maybe people who have the hardest time negotiating their way through uh, the uh, the system the way uh, it is easy for you and for me to do. And so those people who are the most vulnerable, the ones who don't have the ID and are going to face the greatest uh, chance of disenfranchisement. And finally, if, if uh, uh, you know, the question is, what's the benefit? Right? So we're going to impose a cost, I think probably a marginal cost. I think there are probably many fewer people than some Democrats uh, and those on the left claim who are not going to have the ID. But we're going to impose some cost on some number of people who will not be able to vote. You have to ask why. And it turns out, as Wendy said, uh, the only kind of fraud that a voter ID law can prevent is impersonation fraud. And that happens almost never. Uh, In my study for my new book, The Voting Wars, I, I looked back over a generation, couldn't find a single election where uh, impersonation fraud could have made a difference. In contrast to absentee ballot fraud, uh, where where uh, absentee ballots are bought and sold or they're uh, intercepted from mailboxes or miscounted by election officials, that happens all the time. And a voter ID law does nothing to prevent that, and yet we don't take steps to prevent the use of absentee ballots, despite the much greater danger of fraud. So if you do a cost-benefit analysis, there's a very, it's very hard to make an argument as to why a restrictive voter ID law would be uh, justified.
2: Um, We have just a couple more minutes left in our program, so it's uh, about time to wrap up and get your final thoughts along with your contact information. And, Wendy, let's toss it over to you.
3: Well, um, I do want to respond briefly to the point that um, you you do need IDs um, to navigate um, other parts of your day-to-day life, and that is true for some of us, and it's not true for all of us. But almost every um, government agency um, that you will um, deal with will um, accept um, far more forms of ID and, and have alternative mechanisms than um, what you what the new state laws that are now requiring photo ID to vote um, accept. And if you don't have an ID, you know, even if you want to fly an airplane, if you don't have a state issued photo ID, you can go through extra screening and still get on that airplane. There's some other way for the people who don't have those IDs to use that service. And that's um, one of the real problems with these new voter ID laws. If they were asking everyone to show ID and then had an alternative screening way for people who don't have those IDs to participate, we wouldn't be having the same argument that we're having today if you'd like more information about um these voter laws i do want to say that it is not just um voter id that's been going on a- across the states as as rick mentioned this year we've seen a real record number of new laws that are making it harder for um eligible americans to vote and it's um stricter voter id requirements it's laws making it harder to register to vote it's laws cutting back on early voting laws making it harder to restore people's voting rights after felony convictions it's um a, a whole well, range hang of restrictions. Hold on just a
2: minute there. I thought it was that you got a felony conviction, and you lost your right to vote. Where where did that get changed?
3: You know, and um the laws um vary from state to state, um uh, what it is that happens um to people who are convicted of um felonies. Um in most states, um at some point after you're convicted um of a felony, your voting rights are restored. Um Sometimes after you're released from prison, sometimes after you complete your sentence and probation and parole. Um, what we've what we have now are two states that previously restored voting rights um, and had a mechanism to restore the voting rights to people after they've um served their time and returned to their communities and were paying their taxes. Um they eliminated that mechanism by and large and now have um they're now permanently disenfranchised people who've ever been convicted of a felony that is um that is uh, goes against the trend that we've seen for many years of states um uh, in restoring voting rights to people once they've returned to their communities so that's been an abrupt shift as well and it's going to affect a lot of people that's going to in florida there are close to a million people now who are uh, essentially permanently disenfranchised even though they live in the community and otherwise um pay taxes um send their children to schools um, and that has now been, and that was an abrupt shift. Previously, they could get their voting rights restored.
2: Great. And if our listeners would like to reach out to you, Wendy, how can they get a hold of you?
3: There's more information um, at um, on the Brennan Center's website, which is www.brennancenter.org, B-R-E-N-N-A-N-C-E-N-T-E-R.org. And I can be reached through the org website as well.
2: Great. And Professor Hassan, we'll flip it over to you to wrap up with your final thoughts and your contact information.
3: Yeah, I guess my final uh, thought
0: is that uh, it sounds pretty hopeless when you look at how uh, things have gotten uh, worse uh, over the years. The increased litigation, uh, I would say that social media is making it harder for people to be able to uh, have cross political conversations and try and move things forward. We're not seeing bipartisan legislation to try and fix our election problems. And so if we can't go to any grand solutions, as I argued recently in the New York Times, what I think we need to do is have a ceasefire or a detente to election. Now's not the time to start making additional changes in the voting rules, uh, which are going to confuse voters. And run much higher risk of disenfranchising voters than they are of preventing election fraud. I hope that at least as we move forward towards November, we can do some things to try and lower the temperature as uh, people get uh, excited and excitable about the uh, upcoming election. And anyone who'd like to reach me can find all of my contact information at the Election Law blog, which is electionlawblog.org.
2: Great. Well, thank you both very much. We'd like to thank Professor Rick Hassan from the University of California at Irvine and Wendy Weiser, the director of the Democracy Program at the Brennan Center for Justice at the NY School of Law. It's been a great couple of guests. We've appreciated having you on our program today. Uh, you know, it, just in for my final thoughts, it seems that... Uh, the one way to solve this problem is to get a national standard through federal legislation and federal discriminatory laws rather than 50 patchwork type of uh, regulations on this. It just blows my mind that as concerned as Congress is about this, that Congress hasn't stepped in under the Commerce Clause and said, you know, we're going to determine what, it, what the standards are to vote and how to enforce them, and you're going to use the same equipment all across the country, and here's how it's going to work. Uh, it seems like that's a long way off, especially given what we've got right now and uh, not a solution that we're going to see anytime soon. So it's likely that we'll have this discussion several more times as the problem gets worse and worse and worse until people get finally get fed up with it and, and solve the problem. Uh, as far as me, though, I, I, I appreciate the issues with, with uh, voter ID. But uh, frankly, I, you know, if I have to show an ID, I think everybody else should. But that's just me. In any event, it's been great having our uh, our two guests on. Again, Professor Rick Hassan, we'd like to thank, and Wendy Weiser. And we'll be back again next week with another great legal topic. We want to remind our listeners that you can now get CLE credit through West Legal Ed Center for listening to Select Legal Talk Network podcasts. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and click on the West Legal Ed Center. You can also find all Legal Talk Network shows on iTunes. And we have an Android app where you can access all Legal Talk Network shows on your phone and shortly hope to have an iPhone app out as well. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and check it out. And a reminder again, we'll be back again next week with another great legal topic. Bob will be back. So when you want legal, think Lawyer to Lawyer. We'll see you then.
1: The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. Every week a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network.
2: The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast. Your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news
5: and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis